On this week's episode, we honor the former Secretary of State, Colin Powell. General Colin Powell has passed away. We had a chance to sit down with General Powell during his days as Secretary of State, and he told his remarkable life story. He was coming from a background in New York City where uh, pretty cocky, self-confident, living in the streets of New York. I could hang around with Jews and Arabs and Puerto Ricans. Everybody lived in my block. There was no minority. I didn't know I was a minority. We were all minorities. What are the fondest memories of your childhood? Family. Tell us about a wonderful, family. wonderful extended family, uh, uh, tight family, uh, another father, sister, aunts, uncles, cousins, always around, always rounding the kids up and putting them back in play, always reminding us of the uh, rituals of family, the expectations of the cousins. Um, there was, there was no opportunity for failure in the family because that would have shamed the family and that would have destroyed the expectations of the parents, aunts and uncles. So this was drilled into all of us. And I've talked about it many times that didn't make any difference whether you were going to end up being a general, a lawyer or a bus driver or a mechanic. You had to be successful and you had to provide for your family and you were not allowed to shame the family and you were expected to do well with the education that was afforded to you in the public schools. We all went to public schools until colleges came along and we had different opportunities. And you expected to stay in school. Nobody in my family dropped out of school. It would have been unheard of, unthinkable. And uh, that was drilled into us. And it was the, these, these expectations and these tribal rituals, family rituals, that every family has, every culture has were uh, what kept us all in play and kept us all going. What are the qualities today on hindsight that you admire most about your parents, your mother and your father? Uh, willingness to work hard, uh, love in the family, uh, providing for the children, and not just my sister and me, but for other children in the extended family, and their appreciation for family and their willingness to let their children uh, make decisions on their own as to what they were going to do with their lives, but always with the expectation that we would do well and not do anything that was not seen as building upon what the families had done before us. In other words, all of these people came here to this country as immigrants. Uh, they, they came on boats. Both of my parents showed up here on boats, one in Philadelphia and one in New York. And uh, they worked hard, they worked in the garment industry, they worked for minimum wage, uh, and it was simply unthinkable that the progeny, the children of these immigrants would not do better. And the fact that my family, my, my parents were like that, carried over to me and hopefully carried over to my, my children. In those early years, I was looked at as a, as a, as a black lieutenant. And I tell a story in my book about uh, one of my commanders saying to me, you're the best black lieutenant uh, I've ever seen. And I thanked him very kindly. I could have gotten mad. I could have gone in the corner and kicked a bucket. But I just thanked him. He meant well. He didn't know what he was saying, but he meant well. And I just said to myself, thank you very much, sir. But before this is through, I'm going to be the best lieutenant you ever saw. You will not categorize me as the best black lieutenant you ever saw. And so in my early years in the Army, uh, 
there was still a great deal of, uh, of uh, racism and uh, the residual of the earlier years. I mean, I came in the Army only eight or nine years after President Truman signed the order desegregating the Army. And that order really didn't take full effect for about six years. So by the time I came in the Army, the Army had only, the services had only truly been desegregated for about two or three years. And I was a first generation of black officers coming in that there was no de jure uh, segregation applied against by law, by regulation, by rules. So I came in at a time when uh, the Army provided the only channel up in American society. Think of this now. In the late 50s, it was the United States Armed Forces that was the only channel to the top of a profession where performance counted and you were not going to be stopped because of your race background or color. You can't say that about business. You can't say that about medicine. You can't say that about any other institution in America in the mid to late 50s except the United States Armed Forces. And that's what they told me. You, you know, there were still some who said you were the best, you know, best black lieutenant, but the system said we don't care any longer whether you are the best black lieutenant or not. We're going to grade you as a lieutenant. And throughout my career, uh, I believed in that, and the Army believed in that. But even as a colonel, when I was a full colonel, bird colonel, and I was going out to get a brigade command, there were some of my contemporaries said, well, you know why he's getting it. And uh, the suggestion was that I was being given uh, favorite treatment because I was black. Uh, and the only trouble was I ran a pretty good brigade. Uh, and so I don't, I don't worry about those kinds of statements. I never have. I've never let my color or racism be a problem for me. Let it be a problem for the racist, but never for me. Because if you let it become your problem, then you're weakened and you start to doubt yourself. And uh, the advice I give young people around the country is uh, don't walk around with, your, with your, uh, the color of your skin on your shoulder waiting for someone to knock it off. That's their problem. If they look at you that way or they uh, want to discriminate against you or they hold the wrong attitudes against you, that's their problem. And what you have to do is perform and defeat their stereotype, defeat their belief, defeat the prejudice that they have. And you defeat that prejudice by performing. If you don't perform, then they'll hold that prejudice. But if you do perform, Take advantage of all the opportunities you have, schooling, 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 learning the English language, making yourself ready for a society in which you're going to live as an adult, then uh, there's nothing they can do to stop you. There's nothing they can do to stop you in this country if you take advantage of what this country offers you. You know, I'll tell you what's, what's amazing about what you're saying, um, and, and that is you have actually, like many American blacks in this country, you've transcended race. I mean, you're the Secretary of State, you're the former Chairman of the Joint State Chief of Staff, you're a National Security Advisor, you're a General. You're probably the first American black, someone other than a white male, who's had an opportunity, if you wanted it, to become President of these United States, and that people would have voted for you for the right reason. But yet, for whatever reason you may have given to the public, you chose not to run. Once you look back on this when you get old and realize that you could have broken another barrier, that has not been broken through yet. Won't you regret that? No. Um, I'm very uh, confident and sure of the decision I made not to enter political life. But isn't it bigger than you? No, uh, it's not. I served this country with uh, the best of my ability for 40 years. And um, one has to balance many 
things in life to come out to the right answer. And I have found also, as another rule of mine, is that I try to do my best and uh, let others and let history be the judge of what I have done or not. But on decisions of this kind, uh, it is a personal decision I have to make, uh, make with my family. And uh, I have no second thoughts about that decision. In uh, my life, it was the right decision. And I found other ways to serve the nation. I could have stayed in private life, but when President Bush asked me to be Secretary of State, I, I was uh, glad to have the opportunity to serve my country again. This has been studied many, many times, and it's a subject of uh, great debate and discussion. But uh, I gave you my experience, but that experience is not unique to West Indians. You can find families that came out of the South, came out of the worst of segregation, the worst of Jim Crowism, came out of a slavery background. Uh, and yet had the same expectations for their children, the same pressure on their children to do better, and the same pressure not to let down the family. The family sacrificed to make life a little bit better for you than it was for them. And they went on to great success in society. Uh, my my in-laws come from that kind of background, being raised in, uh, in the South uh, and uh, coming from humble origins, but at the same time with that same family expectation. So it's not unique to the uh, West Indian experience, although uh, there is a certain, I, I think there was a certain advantage to the West Indian experience because the West Indians who came here did not come here in, in a, a state of, of uh, secondary citizenship in their own mind. They came here as British subjects, as French subjects, and they believed in this country, uh, and they had gotten something of a quality education in the West Indies before coming here in the first place. So they might have had an edge over the American black experience, but it didn't mean that the American black experience didn't produce the same kind of young people who succeeded because their families uh, expected them to succeed and did everything, sacrificed everything for the children to succeed. And we could go after name after name after name after name from Martin Luther King to, to Bruce Llewellyn to, to you just name it. Uh, and uh, the same kind of success trail is my uh, life as a soldier uh, had no politics in it. Uh, I was interested in issues. I kept well informed during my career as a soldier, but it was part of my professional code that you would never express a political opinion one way or the other. You were non-parochial. That's the way I was raised as a soldier. As I became more senior in the military and as I had outside assignments as National Security Advisor to President Reagan, uh, then life became a little more political, political for me. And in the Republican Party, I found uh, a political philosophy that uh, uh, fixed on a strong defense for the nation uh, that attracted me uh, with respect to its foreign policy considerations, engaging with the world, but being strong in our engagement with the world. Uh, and so it was the foreign policy and security aspects of the party. And my experience as National Security Advisor to President Reagan and working for a number of senior Republican leaders that fixed that in my mind and uh, made it clear that uh, uh, that's where I belonged uh, when I left the Army and could enter open political life and identify myself with a particular party. I also believe that the Republican Party uh, had something of a, of a big tent. Uh, some people think that if you're a Republican you cannot have moderate views. I have moderate views in a number of issues, moderate but normal political definition with respect to affirmative action and things of that nature. 
Uh, and I find that there are many, many Republicans uh, like me who feel that way. And I certainly work for a president who uh, appreciates a full range of views. He and I are absolutely locked in on all issues having to do with foreign policy and security policy. And we have uh, discussed and uh, uh, debated with each other on other policies where uh, our views are not identical, but nevertheless, uh, it's accommodated within uh, the political spectrum of the Republican Party. What do you say to a small mindset in this country that says that if you are Republican and you are black, you're a traitor to your race? Well, I'm not at all. I'm, I'm not you, but just the, any Republican. It's, 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 it's wrong. I think that the uh, black uh, American experience uh, should lead to the conclusion that blacks will be best served if they are in all political parties in America. If they don't give their vote to one or the other, they cannot have the same kind of influence unless they are in all of the political parties in America, principally Republican and Democrat. And uh, you cannot be a traitor to your race by having a particular set of political beliefs. If you look at the Republican Party's history over the last 40 or 50 years, despite what is said about it, if you look at where affirmative action really started, uh, I mean, who really started to put this into law, you will find it has a Republican origin. Uh, you'll find that uh, President Nixon uh, got a lot of these programs started. Uh, you will find that there has been uh, solid support for equal opportunity and affirmative action programs through Republican administrations, and it's gone up and down over the years. In my career as a lieutenant, uh, I was in a learning mode, and I, I would make mistakes occasionally, and I had a, a commander once who uh, uh, figured he had to get my attention. And so he, he found me acting in a very rude way once. Uh, in a way, I won't go into the details of it, it's for family hour here. But <laughs> he disapproved of my behavior and my language. And he just straightened me out, uh, and then he made it a matter of record in my efficiency report. Uh, but he did it in a very smart way that I'll, I'll always be thankful for and, and uh, never forget. And I hope he's watching this because he's still around. Uh, this was 40 odd years ago, and he said, but Powell's a, uh, uh, a, Powell is a very uh, impatient young lieutenant with a short temper, which he makes a mature effort to control. So what he was saying to me is, I've, I've nailed you, but I'm also saying in that same sentence that you're correcting it. Don't let me down. And I've never forgotten that statement, and it essentially was a way to teach a person uh, how to get over a problem they have, or how to, how to get over a mistake they have made. The war against terror began a um, long time ago, but we didn't, we didn't realize how serious a war is going to be and how it was going to be uh, a challenge of the magnitude that it has become until 9-11. Since 9-11, I think the President has handled the challenge in the correct way. We had to deal with the Taliban and Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. And then the president decided that we could not let the problem of Iraq just sit there unresolved. And he took the case to the international community, the United Nations. The United Nations agreed and passed a resolution. Uh, the resolution provided for consequences if Iraq did not behave. Iraq did not behave. We couldn't get the council to pass another resolution, but the first resolution was enough for us to get like-minded nations to form a coalition. And so 
In the last three years, uh, as a result of this president's policies, 55 million people are now free uh, who were not free before. Now, the war in uh, Iraq had some twists and turns in the immediate aftermath of the war that uh, we misjudged the, uh, the strength of this insurgency that we are now facing. And maybe if I could look at that again, if we all could look at that again, we might have done some things differently uh, a year ago. But first, by, by law and title, I'm the uh, senior foreign policy advisor to the President of the United States. So my responsibility is to uh, shape policy foreign policy uh, in, the, in the image that he wants it to be shaped. The president comes in having convinced the people that he knows what's best for the country. And so he's carrying the hopes and aspirations of the American people, and part of that manifests itself in how you conduct a foreign policy. And my job is to help him capture the hopes, aspirations, dreams of the American people with respect to foreign policy, and to represent his foreign policy. It's really his foreign policy conducted in the name of the American people, and my job is to execute his foreign policy, not mine, his. So I help him shape it. I work with the other uh, assistants that he has, uh, the Secretary of Defense, the Vice President, National Security Advisor. We all work together to give the President the best options to deal with the foreign policy challenges that he faces. And once he has made a decision, it is my job, uh, just like when I was a soldier, to carry out the decisions of the President. Uh, he's the president. None of the rest of us were elected to office. He was elected to the office of the president. The other half of my responsibility, of course, uh, is to take care of the wonderful uh, men and women who work in the Department of State. So I'm also a leader and a manager uh, of the tens of thousands of people who are doing such a great job for the American people, not only here in this building, but at some 200 embassies and missions and other facilities we have around the world. Wonderful people, putting their lives on the line. Uh, facing danger, separated from their families, all the kinds of things that you know soldiers do, but our diplomats do it too. Nothing drives me nuttier than to hear someone talk about a pin-striped, cookie-dipping diplomat. Not my guys, not my ladies. They're out there uh, facing danger every single day, uh, carrying forward uh, the foreign policy of the United States of America. Uh, and I haven't seen a pinstripe except for the ones I occasionally wear. Uh, since I walked into this office. Uh, these are great folks, and my responsibility is to make sure they get everything they need to do the job uh, that the American people have for them. So it's a job of, uh, of service. Uh, it's a job of shaping issues for the president. And then there's a high representational part of the job. I've got to go out around the world and uh, visit with uh, leaders around the world, receive uh, dozens of leaders. Uh, today, so far, I think I've seen uh, leaders from four or five different countries and the day is not yet over. And that's typical. And do a lot of uh, television, as we are doing now, a lot of radio, which I will also do later this afternoon, having done some this morning. So there's a big representational component to the job as well. And being a brand new lieutenant. And why? I learned more. And what year was this? 1958, 9, 60. Up to 61 when I got promoted to first lieutenant and then I went to Vietnam in 62. But those first years in the Army were the most uh, formative for me. Um, I entered the Army at age 21, went to the South for the first time. Uh, what part of the South? Georgia. Georgia. Uh, I had been to North Carolina as a cadet, but my first time living in the South was when I went to Fort Benning, Georgia for my basic training. And uh, I left uh, an urban area in New York City and uh, went to a, a not-so-urban area, Fort Benning, Georgia, 
And then I went to Germany and I lived overseas. And I was given responsibility as a young lieutenant. And uh, a young lieutenant of infantry is given a great deal of responsibility and accountability. And you're not given a lot of slack to make mistakes. So rather rapidly as a young lieutenant, you learn what responsibility is. And one of the, one of the uh, sermons I like to give in schools is you say, yes, sir, no, sir, no excuse, sir. In other words, I'm accountable. And uh, I either got it right or I got it wrong. And I'm not giving any excuses for any failure I might have had. I'm going to go ahead and learn from this experience and move forward. So I learned uh, in my first couple of years in the Army as a lieutenant uh, habits having to do with uh, discipline, having to do with selfless service, having to do with preparation, having to do with uh, uh, no excuse, sir. Uh, I will be ready. I will not have to give you any excuse because I'll be ready. And those early lessons that every uh, lieutenant learns, but especially infantry lieutenants, learn uh, are the same habits of discipline and service that I have applied in the subsequent 40 years. And uh, it's part of uh, my, my internal compass. It's part of my hard disk drive and my software. Uh, it's, it's what drives me to these days. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. 